Hi, it's Alan Carter. Here's what I learned today on the podcast. I learned from our Queens Park Bureau Chief, Travis Danrash, about what's going on at the Long-Term Care Commission and why it is so important to understand. I learned from my producer, Sheba Siddiqui, about whether COVID is quashing our sex lives. And from a professor at the University of Guelph, I learned what's really going on with our butter. Is something being added to our dairy? Really? Let's get to it. It's around here somewhere. I just, I can't find it. It's on the floor. It's my jaw. Because it just dropped right off my face. Right down there on the floor. There it is. Brush that off. It's a good thing that whole COVID thing doesn't uh, transmit on services all that well. Uh, Hey, welcome to the program. My name is Alan Carter. Wow. Just absolutely wow. What we have learned today at Queens Park is, as I may have mentioned, jaw-dropping. Jaw-dropping. And I take no joy in having to point this out to begin the week with this question, which is, can we have any faith in the health leadership in the province of Ontario, considering what we have learned? I'm going to take you through it. I'm going to ask you this question. You know, at, at the tail end of a war, which is kind of where we are now, Does it make sense to ask questions about what happened at the beginning of the war? Like, you know, did anybody say to Churchill, you know, late in 44, hey, what was the response about the Blitz? Maybe maybe you should have done something to stop the bombing. That didn't happen. But this is a different kind of thing. So I'm going to tell you why we need to look at this. Because you know what? The same people are in charge now that we're in charge of long-term care in the spring, and we still have a crisis on our hand. Yes, the vaccine's getting here, but we have to ask some questions. I'm going to take you through it and tell you exactly why it is so important and why it is that your jaw is going to be on the floor. Oh, now I dropped it. Your jaw is just going to be down there. And you, oh, man, Alan. And then later, producer Sheba Siddiqui is going to join me to discuss this headline in the Globe and Mail. I'm just going to read you the headline. Another victim of COVID-19, sex between married couples. Shiva Siddiqui will join me shortly to discuss that, and we'll see whether or not this radio program will return tomorrow. If it goes well, we'll be back. If it does not, if we're replaced by just tone, you'll know what happened. Oh, my. Then later on in the program, Buttergate, an update on the controversy. Let me ask you this question. Is your butter harder than it used to be? Now that I think of it, there's a connection between these next two stories we're going to be doing. But let's get to our lead, what we're learning from the Long-Term Care Commission. Let's begin with what this thing is and why you should care. So Ontario's Long-Term Care COVID-19 Commission has a mandate to investigate how and why COVID-19 spread in long-term care homes and what was done to prevent the spread. It has to issue a report by April the 31st. And the commission has interviewed some of the key players and has now released the transcripts of those interviews. So the interviews have already been completed, but for some reason the commission is dribbling these out and dribbled them out uh, through Thursday, Friday, and then over the weekend. So here's the cast of characters being interviewed. 
You have Dr. David Williams, who is the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the province of Ontario. He is the lead health expert. It is supposed to be what he says goes in terms of the political response. So what he says needs to happen, the Premier often you'll hear him say, whatever Dr. Williams says, I do. Marilee Fullerton is the Minister of Long-Term Care. She was interviewed by the Commission, as was Christine Elliott, the Minister of Health and the Deputy Premier. Now, we already found out some disturbing things from testimony about the Chief Medical Officer of Health. I want to play this. This is Jessica Smith-Cross from QP Briefing on this very radio program talking about something that was a jaw-dropper from the testimony from Dr. Williams. So Williams told the commission he didn't actually accept that asymptomatic transmission was the thing until well late into the summer. Um, that raised eyebrows because the CDC, a lot of outside experts, had that fairly well established early in the spring. So when your sort of epidemiologist type hears that the chief medical officer took that long to come to that conclusion, it made them very concerned. It made them very concerned. What did you hear there? Did you get that? It is Jessica Smith-Cross from QP Briefing talking about the testimony of Dr. Williams to this commission, saying that he was, shall we say, tardy, a little late with his realization about asymptomatic spread, and that had a significant impact. Now, from Christine Elliott's testimony, here's something else that we've learned. We've learned that Doug Ford, the premier, disregarded evidence and suggestions to the contrary and kind of went off script on his own and said, if you want to get a test, go get a test. You're asymptomatic, go hit the tests. And you know what happened then? Well, I can tell you what happened then, because night after night after night, on our TV program, Global News, at 5.30 and 6, my other job being the anchor, the co-anchor of that program, we led that program night after night with lineups, visuals of people waiting for hours with their children to get a test. A direct result from what Doug Ford decided to do against the advice that he got from health experts. Now, the transcript of the Long-Term Cares Commission interview with Marilee Fullerton shows that she and her deputy advocated for stronger measures for long-term care to protect residents in long-term care than the government was willing to put in place. And we're calling for those things to happen that eventually did happen, like calling in the military, but not for weeks later. And here's the one number you need to be able to understand this. 3,700 and 44. 3,744. That is the current total of deaths in long-term care since the beginning of this pandemic in the province of Ontario. Each one of those is a tragedy. Each one of those has a story behind it that's not just a number. And that's why it is so important that we understand what Marilee Fullerton said to the commission, and what does it say about the health leadership and the role of Dr. David Williams? Travis Danrej is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief, joins me on the line. Travis, I understand that the minister, is the minister doing scrums today? Yeah, she's going to be, uh, you know, talking in a couple of minutes here to the press gallery at Queen's Park. The premier, I will say, and the health minister, both not in question for today. Um, you know, to face 
questions about some of the issues that you raised. If I am a family member of somebody that has died in long-term care, you better believe I want some answers. And, you know, what we have learned in this past uh, couple days from this commission and these transcripts coming out in drips and drafts is that behind the scenes, it was a little bit of a mess. And, you know, there was no clear person that was leading. And you've got your minister of long-term care here, you know, sounding the alarm bell and not falling on deaf ears. It is a very concerning situation uh, in terms of, you know, what was going on and, and who, who was leading the charge here. I want to play this for you, uh, Travis. Uh, and Dave, uh, Dave's our uh, new uh, tech producer here. Dave, this is number three, Horvath. This is what I want to play for you. This is Andrea Horvath in the house. With I think the central question is, you, you know, talk about something that you heard from Doug Ford time and time again, Iron Ring. Yeah. Here's the question from Andrea Horvath and the response from the Minister for Long-Term Care, Marilee Fullerton. Why was the Premier telling the people of Ontario that there was an iron ring around long-term care when clearly his minister was telling him that that wasn't true? Thank you, Speaker, and thank you again to the member opposite. Uh, I had been following what was going on around the world and these were largely anecdotal cases at that point. There was a paucity of research, a paucity of evidence, and there hadn't been any really large-scale studies into it then. Dr. Williams would have been in tune to the latest science and research and had more inputs available to him from a public health standpoint than we did at the Cabinet table. So I, I uh, want to emphasize the importance of, of uh, the whole Cabinet and the whole government taking the advice of the science uh, and public health experts at that time. Thank you. That is Minister Marilee Fullerton, the Minister of Long-Term Care at Queen's Park in question period, answering a question from Andrea Horvath, the leader of the NDP on the line, Travis Danraj. Uh, Travis, a paucity of research. Yeah. However... I mean, he, 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 yeah, go ahead. You can't put the genie back in the bottle here, right? I mean, she's trying to do a little bit of damage control uh, for um, Ford and for Dr. Williams by herself, even without any support really there in question period today. But it's out there already. We saw the transcripts, and we know what she said, and we know the timeline here that as early as February 5th, I think it was, she wanted uh, asymptomatic. Uh, testing in long-term care, that she wanted to lock down earlier, that she was concerned about PPE earlier. The other thing that I should mention here, Alan, is that this commission, as you said in your intro, is wrapping up their work fairly shortly. You know, they're going to make recommendations next month. But the government just did a dump of 200,000 pages of documents and handwritten notes that they are not going to have time to go through. They also had to fight redactions of some of Dr. Williams' notes. So there's a lot more work to be done here um, to, to really get to the bottom of what happened and how it happened and who was talking to you and who made what decisions. And I don't know if they can do that in the next month. But that's the timeline. I'm speaking with Travis Danrej, who's our Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Let me, let me ask you this, because I, I raised this at the beginning. You know, what are we doing asking questions about you know, what happened last year when we're still in the middle of this fight. Has that been a part of the response of the government? Yeah, and I mean, I, I think you have to look back and see what some of the mistakes were. You went through that that number, right? And, you know, that kind of gave me chills because when you think about how many 
seniors died. When you think about, you know, some of the things that were revealed in that military report in terms of the conditions that some of these people were dealing with, you know, uh, seniors lying on beds screaming out for for help for hours, you know, you know, people in their own feces and things like that. I mean, the like this stuff is very disturbing. And yeah, I mean, the families want answers. So yes, now is the time to do that. The other thing here is Premier Ford does not want to testify in front of this commission. And, you know, the opposition pushing that narrative as well today at Question Period saying he should. Travis, I know you got to go. Thank you so much. I appreciate your perspective on this. Thanks, Alan. That is Travis Damarez, who is our Queen's Park Bureau Chief here at Global News. Did you catch the Golden Globes last night and watched a little bit of it? Not that it's, you know, not that, you know, award shows are my thing, but there I was watching it. And I just thought to myself, this program is perfect for what we're all living through right now. It really was a representation of everything that is going on in our lives right now. And if you watched it at all last night, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It was awkward. It was jaggy. People talked over each other. There was moments where people were on where they didn't know they were on. People couldn't pronounce words. They were interrupting each other. It, it, it was every single thing that we all experience on the regular. And it was kind of nice to see Hollywood's A-list just, you know, all of a sudden freeze mid-conversation or you know, just, it doesn't matter how rich you are or how great your background is or how fancy you're dressed up as. When the Zoom call doesn't work, it doesn't work for any of us. Joining me now, Sheba Siddiqui, my producer, Sheba, going through the hey, papers hey. today. Lots of things to talk about. Uh, anything jump out at you? Something certainly did. And I, for some reason, I thought of you right away, Carter. Why? There's... This worries me. <laughs> so there's an article in the Global Mail today on how calls to couples therapists are up more than ever right now. Why? Because couples are no longer having sex during this pandemic. Now, couples feel trapped in a house together, right? And with the uncertainty mm. and stress of the pandemic, complete intimacy is gone. Gone. Um, gone. Gone. So here's the thing. Couples are getting, co- they're overly comfortable with each other. They're living in their sweatpants. <laughs> track suits for some. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Uh-huh. Okay. Binging. Wait a second. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Check. I know. Check. Yeah. <laughs> check. Binging on Netflix and mm. binging on carbs. Mm. So none of this is helping their sex lives. It goes so far as one clinical psychologist says that her clients feel claustrophobic and desperate. So between work, kids, cleaning, laundry, all of that, they're exhausted and there is no time left to connect with each other and have sex. What do you think? Well, I just I, I just think that I, I'm so very fortunate and privileged to just be able to leave the house, get in the car <laughs> and come here to this industrial building in Don Mills where I then go down into the basement here into this closet and shout and and in the before times, I would have said, well, that's all kind of a hassle. But I, I don't think I, I realized the benefit of just getting out and seeing other things. I can't imagine couples that, like, you're just trapped together in the house. And that's for a whole year, that's all you are seeing each other and the kids. That's that's tough. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. Hmm? It's kind of the opposite in my house. I have what? to be honest with you. I don't know what's going on, Carter. Yes. My kids are in school. As long as they're in school, I feel calm. I feel in control. 
Uh, I'm not commuting to work every day. That's a big change in me. So there's no commute to work. I don't come home exhausted because I'm stuck in traffic, swearing and yelling at the guy beside me, giving him the finger. Uh, I, I'm relaxed. I'm in control. I've set up a really nice space where I can work. Uh, I'm definitely not in a closet. So that helps. Uh, so this article goes on to talk about alone time. So this mm. is really important. So you, okay. to get your alone time, you need to, in order to cultivate your sense of identity, you need your alone time. For me personally, Carter, I go out every single day from like 6 to 7 a.m. I either go for a run, a walk. I don't care if it's minus 20, if it's 10 degrees. I don't care. I'm out there. I'm bundled. Uh, I always believe there's no such thing as bad weather. Right. There's just dress. Just so this is your you sanity dress. walk, your sanity run. And you're getting I up at it. what time in the morning to do this? I'm up at like 5.30 every day. Oh, my yeah. God. See, this is something that's changed in the pandemic for me, actually. I'm an early riser. I love it, though. I get out there. I get the fresher. I come home. I'm in such a great mood. I don't want to kill my family. Uh, the family therapist in the article also suggests setting aside 15 minutes two or three times a week to check in with each other. So, what, I don't know. I mean, And oh, you're yeah, not allowed to talk about the sexy. kids. That's sexy. That's sexy. Hey, honey, my schedule <laughs> says we're supposed to talk for 15 minutes. That's Carter. I have four kids. Okay, you need to schedule everything. Okay, once you get past two, I think everything is scheduled. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. And so, anyways, in my house, I don't know. I'm in a great mood. I feel relaxed. I'm getting my alone time in. My kids are in school, so it's, it's good so times not, around here. You're not buying this Globe and Mail article. No, I'm, but I might be the exception because I mean, if he was in my face all day, he works in the basement. I'm right. upstairs. If I had to see him all day, like we have that, that. But you but know, do you do, we were... do you have this thing where you're like, please, please, stop wearing that tracksuit? That's actually a hundred percent what my wife said to me this weekend. It, which she said oh, I... at one point, she said it would be nice to see you in something other than that tracksuit. <laughs> well, you <laughs> to me. You bragged to me about your tracksuits, so I know I you're very proud and comfortable. I love my tracksuits. I'm never. I mean, I have to wear yeah. a suit like a chump on the news every night. The rest of the time, forget it. It's all elastic waistband pants. I'm with you. I'm with you. But I'm also getting my exercise in. I'm eating really well. I'm really taking care of myself. So I don't. I think that adds to the fact that things are pretty good in the bedroom over here. There's Whoa. one thing that the article talks about also is a concept of simmering. So this is really important. So it's okay. small gestures to stay sexually engaged that don't lead to sex. Things you can do with your partner like dancing, listening mm. to music, cooking together, something that engages the senses as opposed to like just playing a board game or playing Monopoly together. That doesn't really do anything. My whole life is a simmer. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm on simmer. I'm on simmer all day, every day. So you're simmering all the time. Lucky woman. Okay. That's, 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 I never reach a boil. It's just a simmer. Well, it just never. One thing I'm like a watched pot. Never, never boils. <laughs> one thing we've started doing around here, though, on Friday nights, is we kick the kids into the basement. Uh, we order a pizza for them, shove them down there with the movie. Don't, don't come up unless there's blood. That's the rule. Oh, just stay down wow. there, and we order it. ourselves a really nice dinner. We sit at the table. We talk uninterrupted. It's wonderful. We pretend like we've never had these children. It's the before times of before kids. And I find that that's really helping our relationship. And meanwhile, downstairs is Thunderdome, right? Oh, just, probably. Yeah. But just unless someone's bleeding, just keep it down there. <laughs> Sheba Siddiqui, thank you for uh, informing me about uh, all of these details. By the way, that uh, story in the Globe and Mail today. It is
Let's get out the butter, shall we? We got an update on Buttergate for you. What is Buttergate? I mean, what are you talking about, Alan? Have you noticed, for example, have you noticed anything up with your dairy? If you happen to be a baker, for example, because anecdotally, there's a sort of belief out there right now from a lot of people that butter is not what it used to be, or at least it doesn't soften at the same rate that it used to. Now you think, well, what are you telling me about this? I don't, I'm just putting it on my toast. I don't care, whatever. Well, it's a pretty big deal because it has got the entire dairy industry, which is an enormous industry in this country, up in arms. Dairy Farmers of Canada, this is from Canada Press here, just, come in, just came in. Dairy Farmers of Canada is now encouraging its members to find alternatives to palm supplements in cattle feed as a working group looks into consumer concerns that butter has become harder. So what the story is here is that there is a suggestion of belief that palm supplements, palmatic acids, palmetic acids, I'll find out in a moment, I'll be corrected, I'm sure, that that is being added to livestock feed as a way to bump up production in fats, and be able to get more butter. And that that has changed the butter's consistency. And this has spread so far and wide now. Here, the Today Show, the Today Show in the United States picking up this story, here from their webpage, has now gone right into it, talking about it, and is now prompting questions of the American Food and Drug Administration about the use of palm acids in the United States. So it has gone now from being a Canadian issue and it is spreading around the world as Canada is looking at the world is looking at Canada going, what's with this Buttergate thing? Alex Morangoni is a food science professor at the University of Guelph and joins me on the line. Try to get to the bottom of this. Let's begin. By the way, Alex, thank you so much for joining me. Can you explain to me what a palmatic acid is? Oh, thank you, Alan, for inviting me. This is a, a complex issue. Some people actually think that it's funny that we're so concerned about butter. But I think it has wider implications. Hopefully we'll get to them. But, yeah, palmitic acid, you were pretty close. Uh, Any fat or any oil, believe it or not, is made of two components. One of them is glycerin, and the other one is these fatty acids. Of course, it's a natural product made by nature, made by us, by everybody. And when they're put together, they're like fats and oils. And when you split them, you can split them quite easily. You split out the glycerin or glycerol and the fatty acids. And, you know, different fats and oils have just different types of fatty acids. Some of them... They call them, remember when people tell them more unsaturated or monounsaturated, that's more liquidy, like your olive oil, your vegetable oils, and then the, the harder fats. They have all the saturated ones, uh, like palmitic acid that you were referring to, steric acid. Those are the acids that are associated with like the saturated fats. So you have the saturated fatty acids, the unsaturated fatty acids. And yes, they add palmitic acid or... Um, the unsplit version of it, like palm oil. Palm oil is super rich in palmitic mm-hmm. acid. It's like half palmitic acid. So as you know, palm oil is pretty inexpensive, right? It's widely available. And those guys out there are pretty good at splitting things. So they split them. They either sell you the palm oil or palm fractions or this palmitic acid that they have been adding to feed for decades. So in, in, in your research, there is no evidence that there has been a change in the last year, 18 months, in terms of the amount being fed to cattle? That is a really good question, because 
people have noticed that that's how it started, right? A lot of hearsay. People are going, hey, this this is not working the same way. This is not working the same way. And nobody was coming out clean and saying why that could be the case. And and that grew. And then that professor from out east um, uh, made an announcement in, in, in the news. And then everything exploded. Everybody came out of the closet and said, yeah, it is harder. But... Um, but I don't know. Something might have happened. Maybe it has increased in the supplementation. And remember how I told you, they could feed the cows the palm oil or the palmitic acid from the palm oil, right? And if they start feeding them palmitic acid, it would be like a, like a, a, a stronger version of it. So it could lead to greater changes or, or something like that. The thing is that nobody is telling anybody what, what happened with this. But what is really surprising to me is the reaction from the dairy farmers of uh, uh, mm. of, of of whatever province or of Canada, um, this is a very common practice. There's published papers. Like if you spend 10 minutes on the internet, you find all the published papers that say, yeah, we add palmitic acid. And yeah, the butter, the milk fat comes out with like 25% more, 30% more palmitic acid. Um, it's like very well established and, and, and like that. That, that. There's no mystery to that. What I find mysterious is that all of a sudden everybody, like the, the the dairy industry goes, oh, my God, this is happening? How surprising. I mean, what do you mean it's surprising? I'm speaking with uh, Alex Morangani, who's uh, a food science professor at the University of Guelph. So yeah. uh, what the dairy farmers of Canada, what the representatives have said is, you know, it's unsubstantiated, that they're, it's unfounded. However... It's out there in the public discourse. It's being widely spread. It's being widely shared. People are talking about it. Shiba Siddiqui is a, a great yeah. baker. She's my producer, and she talked about, it. yeah, I, I, I have a sense too that there's something different with butter. So, I mean, is it just anecdotal, or is it really happening? Uh huh. And then the other part of this whole thing, have you noticed how we've been like uh, been disturbed by this and stuff? There's not a single piece of data out there that shows, um, let's say, wouldn't it be like a logical thing to measure the hardness of different butters and then <laughs> analyze them and see how much palmitic acid they have and see, well, you know, the ones with a higher one are harder. Would you believe that that doesn't exist? We have been in my lab, I said, enough of this stuff, right? So we bought a whole bunch of butters. Right. We measure the hardness this morning. We're analyzing it this afternoon. Let's see what comes out of it tomorrow. Seriously, it is a one-day thing. Right. So that's, that's, you're doing that right now? Yeah, right now. <laughs> like, why, why not? Why is everybody talking and everybody's, oh, yeah, the data. No, you've seen comments on the dairy industry. The data is out there, though. There haven't been significant changes. Where's the data? Why aren't they showing us the data? I, I think, what you think is that, Butter has this image of being natural, right? And people think, you know, grandma, grandpa making pies. It's sort of a natural product, right? And then they find out that not really all the butter out there. I mean, most of our food is not like a natural product. Like this very big high-tech intervention supplementing the cow so they produce more milk, they produce more fat, they're optimized. Everybody's into that, right? And everybody wants inexpensive food too, right? So, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, my butter is not natural anymore. And nobody's coming clean on it. And on top of it, they're putting in palm oil, which is associated with horrible sustainability, right. you know, in the Southeast Asia, yeah. the orangutans. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the sustainability issues with uh, the production of palm oil. Can you discuss for me uh, the, the reaction of dairy farmers? And, and you mentioned the uh, East Coast uh, researcher, that's uh, Sylvain Chalba, who was on this program, yeah. uh, and, and said um, that, the, the industry is trying to effectively silence him. Uh, and your reaction to that? 
I think, I mean, yes, they're trying to silence him. Maybe he came out a little too sensationalist, but I don't think anybody's innocent here. I don't understand why the, the, the their industry wouldn't say, hey, guys, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. And, yeah, it's known that it can increase palmitic acid. You know, just coming clean, right? And uh, as opposed to putting a, a veil of mystery on the whole thing and, and, and acting uh, you know, surprised, <laughs> which how could it be surprised? There's like volumes and volumes of paper that show this effect and, and it's been being used for a while. So I think. But what, 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 I, would, what would be the motivation to do something like that from from the industry, do you think? Well, you know, now now people are going to feel negative about their natural product. There's this natural image of butter, like don't mess with the butter, like like the Brits with their chocolate. right? don't mess with the British chocolate. It, it's um, it's one of these like holy kind of products with a natural image. And maybe now people will consider it a little bit less natural because of all this supplementation. But, hey, you know what? That happens in a lot of our food supply. Maybe we should be discussing whether we should be probably eating butter from just grass-fed cows, right? Organic grass-fed that don't contain any of these extra supplements. But then people have to be ready to pay like a lot more, right? Right. And we know what consumers want um, and they vote with their pocketbook. Yeah, and it's and it, nobody is at fault here. I mean, it's a combination. I mean, am I going to buy a butter at ten dollars for a pound? Probably not. And mm. so, I mean, so there's a balance in there. But I, I think that 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 people should be should know, you know, where 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 the food comes from and what's happening to it. And obviously, right from this reaction, people feel strongly about it, right? And, uh, Alex uh, Morangoni is a uh, food science professor at the University of Guelph. Alex, will you get back in touch with me and uh, give me the results of your butter experiment? Absolutely. I'll do that. <laughs> I appreciate that, Alex. Thank you so much. I appreciate your uh, perspective and helping us understand Buttergate a little better. Thank you, Alex. Wow. Well, we continue to keep stay on top of that. Listen, I referenced uh, in that interview a couple of our previous interviews. We've done a, a series of uh, interviews on Buttergate, and I challenge I challenge you, is there another radio program out there dedicated to your dairy like us? I mean, you know, we're not going to let it curdle. We're going to get right, we're going to get right to the froth is what we're going to do. We're going to skim, all right, I'll stop. But if you want to hear the interviews with uh, with Mr. Chalabois, the professor from East Coast, or uh, the food writer from the Globe and Mail that initially put out this tweet that said, hey, is everybody else experiencing this? And that's the thing that has gone absolutely viral. Both of those interviews are available on the podcast, and you can get the podcast wherever you you know download your usual potties. Just go there to the Alan Carter radio program. All of our previous shows are there, and we're going to stay on top of this whole Buttergate thing. You know, the one thing that we really didn't get into a lot there, and we should say, is that there is no evidence of any health impact from the use of palmitic acids. And in fact, they are approved for use in Canada and in the United States. But, as we alluded to, there are environmental concerns that the production of that of palm oil uh, is causing deforestation and all kinds of other uh, environmental impacts in another part of the world so that we can have, you know, our cows produce more butter, essentially. I know cows don't produce butter. Don't, don't at me, all right? That's the podcast today. Don't forget, the Alan Carter Radio Program is live weekdays at noon.